For most of us, a retreat is a unique and special time in our lives because it's a chance to step back and to disentangle a bit from the busyness of our lives, from all our worldly activities. It's a chance to step back, to quiet down. In the beauty of these surroundings, and this is quite an extraordinary facility to do a retreat, it's actually possible in the stillness, in the silence, to reconnect the sense of inner beauty, inner stillness, inner silence. And that's the great power of this kind of coming together. There's a sense of great ease and great joy when we can put it all down, even for a moment. You know, when we're sitting in the midst of the busyness of our minds, if there's even a moment or a few moments when we come to a place of rest, we see that possibility, we see that potential, that's a wonderful discovery, it's a wonderful connection. It's the mind that even for a moment lets go of struggle, lets go of grasping, lets go of holding on. It's a mind of relaxed wakefulness, relaxed alertness. So how can we accomplish this? How can we actually develop it, sustain it, nurture it? One of the unique aspects of the Buddha's teachings is that the spiritual path, as he explained it, and as he taught it, both begins and ends with right understanding. In order to start on the journey, we have to have some context of understanding. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. It's too hard. We have to have some understanding that gives our effort meaning. And at the very end of the path, right understanding culminates in the wisdom of enlightenment, the wisdom of freedom. When you build a house, probably the most important aspect, the most important part of the structure, is also the least glamorous. And that is the foundation. You don't see too many foundations in Architectural Digest. And yet, if the foundation is not strong, it's not steady, it's not well made, no matter what else you do, however fantastic the design may be, or the materials may be, without a strong foundation, it's not of much value, because the whole thing crumbles. It's exactly the same way on a spiritual path. We can have all kinds of different meditative experiences, you know, and far out things happening. <coughs> but if the foundation is not solid, the foundation of our right understanding, they don't mean anything, and they don't have much transforming value. 
So we need a foundation in our lives that turns our mind towards the Dharma, turns the mind towards the truth, towards compassion, towards greater love. We need a foundation of right understanding that's strong enough and firm enough that it can actually hold our life and all the ups and downs and twists and turns of our practice that it gives it some meaning. The Buddha spoke of four powerful reflections and he called them the reflections which turn the mind towards the Dharma or the four mind-changing reflections because they're powerful enough to actually change the way our minds hold our experience, change the way our minds understand our lives both in practice and also in the world. These four reflections serve to jolt us out of complacency, the complacency in our lives. They jolt us out of delusion, out of sleep, out of a superficial understanding. So what is the first of these mind-changing reflections? This is something that we need to let percolate both throughout the retreat but also throughout our lives. Because they have a very powerful effect on how we understand things. The first of these mind-changing reflections is that consideration of what is called this precious human birth. The Buddhist cosmology, as most of you probably know, is really vast. I mean, in, in the teaching they talk of you know, many planes of existence and 31 planes of existence and countless world systems and endless cycles of rebirth. So we're talking about a very big picture. And in this vast cosmology, over and over the Buddha emphasized how precious it is to take birth as a human being. That it's a rare event in the immensity of possibility. He likened it, this precious human birth, to arriving at a great treasure island that's just filled with all precious things. Now you may not feel like you've arrived at a great treasure island, <laughs> but upon reflection, I think we can understand this very meaningfully. Because as a human being, when we know the way, when we understand the Dharma, and Dharma here means truth, or the way things are, as a human being, when we understand the Dharma, every happiness is possible for us. Because we begin to learn what are the conditions for happiness to arise, and then we fulfill those conditions. It's very simple. Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, the great Vietnamese um, 
teacher and poet and activist, he had a wonderful little phrase. He said, happiness is available, please help yourself to it. You know, and it comes out of right understanding, understanding the causes of happiness and then cultivating those causes. This reflection on precious human birth is not limited to a consideration of our human birth in the context you know, of many lifetimes and many world systems, which you may or may not you know, have belief in. It can also be understood, and perhaps more relevantly for us, within the context of this very life. has to do with reflecting on the preciousness of our circumstances. Perhaps the most fundamental aspect of the Buddhist teaching is the understanding that all things arise out of causes and conditions. This is a very important, pervasive principle that everything is arising out of causes and conditions. Nothing arises independently of conditions. And the understanding that these conditions are always uncertain. You know, we feel like we have a grip on or a handle on the circumstances of our lives, but that's really a basic delusion. When you look around in the world, you know, so many places in the world where people were living peaceful, stable, ordinary lives, and then in a moment, circumstances change, and the lives of individuals or hundreds or millions of people completely turned upside down. And it could be due to natural disaster, which happens. Could be due to war, could be due to violence, could be due to disease. So many conditions in our lives are uncertain. And so it's very helpful to reflect on the preciousness of our good circumstances when we have them. Because we're not exempt from this truth of uncertainty. You know, and, you know, and I think we all share this kind of sense, when things are going well, it just seems like they'll go well forever. And we don't pay attention. But it's all part of uncertain conditions always changing. For now, with all of us here, it's quite an amazing coming together of conditions. We have the leisure, the resources, the interest to practice. Lots of things came together for us to be here. And it's helpful to reflect on this and to really see that this is a great blessing in our lives at this time. Not taking these circumstances for granted because they may not always be here. 
even among beings who are born human, you know, the four or five billion people on the earth, how few get to hear, even hear, teachings about liberation, about freedom? Very few. It's a very rare circumstance. And even among those who, through circumstance, get to hear the teachings, how many of those are actually interested in them? <laughs> many fewer. And of those interested, how many have enough motivation and the circumstances to actually put them into practice? This precious human birth. Now we need to reflect on this see the blessing in our lives, so that we don't slip into complacency. This reflection also serves another purpose. And that is, it puts all the ups and downs and all the difficulties of our lives in a much greater context. Now it puts our personal story in a very different context. Reflecting on this precious human birth and the causes which created it engenders in us a very deep and genuine sense of self-respect and respect for others. It's said that the Bodhisattva, who was the Buddha before his enlightenment, on the eve of his enlightenment, he was sitting under a tree, somewhat similar to this. <laughs> you know, in Bodh Gaya, what's now Bodh Gaya, India. And on the eve of his enlightenment, he was assailed by the forces of Mara, Mara being the personification of ignorance and illusion. And one of the ways Mara assailed the Bodhisattva, his mind was filled with doubt. Doubt about even his right to be seeking Buddhahood, full enlightenment. You know, and I think we can resonate in ourselves with our own sense of perhaps unworthiness or insecurity, or how can I aspire to, to become a Buddha, to become enlightened? And it's said that the Bodhisattva, as these doubts arose in his mind, he reached down and he touched the earth, and this is a famous mudra in Buddhist imagery. Now he touched the earth with his hand, calling witness to the Mother Earth, to all of his lifetimes of effort and energy and practice, which had created the conditions for him to be sitting there under that tree, which had created the conditions for the attainment of enlightenment. It wasn't by accident. And we need to do the same thing. We need to appreciate the fact that each one of us, through our own past actions, our own past skillful, wholesome actions, has created the conditions for us to be here in practice, for us to have the aspiration to awaken. So when we reflect on this, there's a tremendous sense of 
inspiration and joy that comes even in the face of the difficulties because we've created a much bigger context of understanding what's happening. This is the first reflection that turns our mind towards the Dharma. The preciousness of human birth, the preciousness of our circumstances that allows us to be doing this. The second mind-changing reflection the reflection on impermanence. Now this is quite interesting because if you go up to anybody on the street and you say, do things change? Oh yeah, things change. Everybody, this is obvious. I don't think there's anybody who would say things don't change. And yet, we seem to stay on a very intellectual level with it. We know intellectually that things change, but we haven't for the most part deeply grokked it, deeply integrated it into our wisdom, into our understanding. And so that's what we need to do with this reflection. We need to see it at work over and over and over again until our understanding of impermanence goes from an intellectual level to a level of transforming wisdom. When we truly and deeply see the impermanence of things, what happens? The mind relaxes. The heart relaxes. Because we let go. We're not holding on so tightly. We only hold on, we're only attached because we're under the illusion that we in fact can hold on to something. So when we see through that, when we reflect on the changing nature, the impermanent nature, and we see it deeply, there's this great ease that comes about in our lives. We let go of a lot of struggling let go of a lot of suffering. It's said that the Bodhisattva, in his aspiration for Buddhahood, reflected on this truth, thinking that why should I, who am subject to change, also keep seeking those things which are subject to change? And it inspired him to seek what is called the deathless, that which is beyond this changing ephemeral nature. Yet when we look at our own lives, mostly what we find is that we also keep going after more changing experience. I mean, what are we doing with our lives? And mostly we're leaning forward we're looking forward, we're anticipating the next hit of experience, whatever it may be. You know, the next event in our lives, and kind of living for that, or the next vacation, or the next job, or the next relationship, or the next 
Maybe in this context, it's the next meal. No. <laughs> the next breath. It's always the next. And the but the next is going to be just as transitory as everything that's happened until now. So why do we keep reaching out for it as if somehow the next thing is actually going to fulfill us or satisfy us? When will we get it? This reflection, deep reflection, and more than a reflection, a real investigation or exploration of impermanence, it reminds us that all experience, that everything that we experience in our lives is simply part of an endlessly passing show. It's empty phenomena rolling on. That was a phrase one of my teachers used, and it reverberated in my mind very often in sitting. Just be sitting and watching the show. Empty phenomena rolling on, moment after moment after moment. My first teacher, Manindraji, he used to ask, where is the end of seeing? Where is the end of hearing? You know, smelling, of sensing, of tasting, of thinking. Do we ever get to the end of it? No. It's not that there's anything wrong in these experiences. That's not the implication. So don't misinterpret that. It's not that there's anything wrong in seeing or hearing or smelling or feeling or thinking. It's just to reflect on the understanding that these phenomena are incapable of providing a lasting happiness. They're incapable of providing the fulfillment that we're looking for precisely because they're here and they're gone in the moment. There's one very wonderful paradox of spiritual life, and it's, it's really quite interesting, is that all of these objects of experience, as objects of desire, keep on leaving us unfulfilled. <coughs> and yet, as objects of mindfulness, become the vehicle of awakening. So it's this, the very same experiences in our lives when we're relating to them as objects of desire, they leave us very frustrated. And yet the very same experience, when we relate to them as objects of mindfulness, they actually are the doorway to our liberation. So it's not to run away from experience, it's to learn how to be with it in a fruitful and constructive way. So how can we deepen our understanding of impermanence? In the meditation itself and with the power of concentration, we begin increasingly to experience the momentariness of phenomena. Now, especially as the retreat goes on, or those of you who have practiced you know, for a while, you know, at a certain point we just begin to see the rising and passing very quickly of all phenomena. But even in 
much more ordinary ways we can tune into impermanence in a way that frees the mind. Next time you go for a walk, you're just walking outside, either the slow meditative walk or a more relaxed walk, simply pay attention to the flow of experience, you know, to the movement of the body, the different sensations of the movement, and to sounds, and to you know, the sensations of the air and the skin and the sights. Just be watching. Be watching the flow of experience and watch what happens. They're all disappearing and new ones are arising and disappearing and new ones are arising. There's nothing stable, there's nothing steady. There's nothing which remains. We actually can see in the most ordinary way the constant vanishing, passing away. The thing is that the truth of this is so ordinary that we miss it. We don't pay attention to it because it is so ordinary. And yet in the not paying attention to the impermanence, the changing quality of very ordinary experience, we keep missing the opportunity to not hold on. We keep missing the opportunity to rest in the mind free of attachment, free of grasping, free of clinging, free of anticipation. Ajahn Chah, who was one of the great Thai meditation masters of this century, his very teachings were always very simple and very to the point. He said, if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, your struggles with the world will have come to an end. <laughs> it's really simple although it's not easy to do because of our strong, habituated responses. This reflection, investigation, exploration of impermanence, both in a very concentrated meditative way and in a very ordinary way in our lives, really helps us to let go. Sometimes reflections on very obvious truths can really startle us into wakefulness. And the Buddha suggested some, some reflections in just this way, things that are very obvious and yet things we don't generally think much about. One such reflection on impermanence is the understanding that the end of birth is death. How often in the course of an ordinary day do you really think about this? Probably for most of us, not that often. And yet this is the great, the great fact of life, the great mystery, the great truth, that our life is only running out. Time is just getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter until death. 
So when we think about this, when we really feel this, and yes, this is going, this is happening not only to the other guy, but it's happening <laughs> to me. How do we hold this? Does it frighten us? You know, do we think it's, as somebody said the other night in town, you know, is it morbid to think about this? Does it create anxiety? Or does it inspire us? Does it say, yes, this is what's true. What are the implications for my life and how I'm living? The end of life is death. The end of accumulation is dispersion. This is a really good one for our culture, you know, because we're such an accumulating culture and so much of our energy in lives is just accumulating <coughs> all sorts of things. And yet when we see, when we look carefully, always the end of accumulation is dispersion. Either things break or get lost or we move or we die or somehow or other we're going to be parted from these things that we're accumulating. I recently saw a wonderful documentary film on the South African writer and naturalist and explorer Sir Lawrence Vanderpost. This is a film by, actually he's a friend of ours, a, a Dharma practitioner, Mickey Lemley. And he did this documentary and it had uh, quite a bit of footage of Sir Lawrence Vanderpost in South Africa uh, connecting with the Bushmen, you know, which is a very uh, unique culture in the world. So they had this one, this one piece of footage uh, where Sir Lawrence Van der Post and a lot of the uh, South African and English explorers were out in the middle of the desert, the Kalahari Desert, I guess, you know, and they were talking with these Bushmen. And Sir Lawrence asked you know, one of the Bushmen, well, how long would it take for you to, you know, get ready and pack up and move to another spot? And this particular Bushman said, oh, about one minute. <laughs> you know, and you could see them then just put together their, you know, few, few articles of survival and march off into the desert quite happily. And the next shot was Sir Lawrence and this whole entourage loading up the Land Rover, <laughs> you know, with trunks and boxes and all the paraphernalia of exploration. <laughs> it was just such a lesson. And obviously it's not that we're about, probably, to go and live with the same simplicity as the Bushmen, although it might not be a bad idea, but we're probably not going to head in exactly that direction. But still, it's very helpful just to take a look at the tendency toward accumulation, how much of our life is spent doing that, and know that it's, it's of no use. It's all going to be dispersed in the end. The end of life, the end of birth is death. The end of accumulation is dispersion. The end of meeting is always separation. The Buddha likened all of our meetings, no matter whether it's occasional or very intimate meetings, always ends in separation. 
He said it's like figures in a dream mingling. You know, in a dream, figures come together and live out a certain dynamic and then part. Dream ends. Yet how often do we get so interlocked, so entangled in our relationships, forgetting this very basic insight and understanding? that the inevitable separation, at one point or another, for whatever reason, becomes the condition for sometimes very overwhelming sorrow and suffering. This is not uncommon. Buddha said that more tears were shed in the course of our endless lifetimes over the sorrow of separation than the water in all the great oceans. We've been doing this a long, long time. You know, again, for most of us, the feelings of sorrow and loss are quite natural. So it's not to think that, or to pretend, you know, that I'm meditating and so I'm not going to feel sorrow or loss in the face of separation. But the more we reflect on and investigate the truth of impermanence in this way, the inevitability of separation, so then it's less likely that we drown in those waters. That there'll be sorrow and there'll be sadness. But perhaps from the wisdom of our reflection, we don't, be, we, we don't become overwhelmed by that. We're not drowning in it. And we begin to see more and more clearly the very critical, essential difference between love and attachment. Because so often these two get confused. Love is a generosity of the heart. It's a giving. And attachment is a holding on to. Very different energies. And yet in our relationships, somehow they get all mixed up. So this reflection, this mind-changing reflection on impermanence, in all of these different aspects, it reorients our mind towards letting go towards caring rather than attachment, rather than holding. It reorients us towards freedom instead of delusion, instead of bondage. The first mind-changing reflection is that of the precious human birth. waking us up from the complacency in our lives. The second is the reflection on impermanence. So we really investigated in all of its very many manifestations in our lives. The third mind-changing reflection is on the law of karma. 
And what this means very simply, karma is a Sanskrit word, very predominant in the teachings of the Buddha. Basically what it says is that all actions have consequences, that actions have results, that we can't do something in a vacuum. So again, this is quite obvious when we, when we look around. We can see it very clearly just in, a, in the physical world, the physical environment. What happens when we pollute the environment? People get sick. The whole quality of life is diminished. And we, we know this. We're, we're reaping the fruits of certain kinds of actions. What happens when we take care of the environment, when we clean it up? We experience greater ease, greater health, greater well-being. Very simple. Things are not happening accidentally. You know, the water is not polluted for no reason. It's because certain actions have taken place. Well, the Buddha went one step further in clarifying this law of cause and effect. And it's this further clarification which is critical not only for our experience of happiness in our lives, it's critical for an understanding of the entire spiritual path. So with the Buddha, the furthest step he took in describing this law of cause and effect, he said that what, what most completely <coughs> determines the result of an action, the thing that most completely determines the result is the motivation behind the action. This is a very critical principle. In, in, some, in some traditions it's expressed that everything rests on the tip of motivation. Everything. Just the whole unfolding of our lives and the lives of others and the planet rests on the tip of motivation. So this mind-changing reflection then on the law of karma, it invites us, more than invites it, I don't know the word for more than invite, <laughs> that we look very carefully, that we investigate very carefully the motivations in our own hearts underlying the actions that we take. Because it's only when we do this that we begin to open up the space in ourselves and in our lives to make some wise choices. If we don't see, if we don't investigate our own motivations behind our actions, what happens is we simply are playing out all the patterns of our conditioning. There's very little chance there for wise choice for wise discrimination. When we do begin looking at our motivation, one of the first things we find is that it's often not very clear. You know, we often have mixed motivations behind our actions, <coughs> or maybe a series of conflicting ones. There's one little story which peripherally involves Sharon, but as a kind of a, a backdrop to, to the 
to this. You have to know that among uh, Dharma teachers generally, uh, there's a great, uh, how shall I say, <laughs> competition <laughs> for good stories. <laughs> a good story is a very precious commodity <laughs> in this job. You know, we're kind of like story vultures. <laughs> okay, so I was on retreat once, and I was reading through some of the suttas, some of the discourse of the Buddha, and I came upon the story that I thought Sharon is in the process of writing a book on faith. And I came across this story, and my first thought was, oh, that would really be a great story for Sharon's book. And my very next thought was, no, I don't want to give it to her. <laughs> I want it for myself. It's a really good story. And then my next thought was, no, let it go. Give it to her. More stories will come. <laughs> and then I thought, no, that's just being greedy. <laughs> let it go. And then my next thought, this is a whole... My next thought was, well, I'll be happy to really share this story, but I'm going to tell her about my, you know, this whole mental process, you know, and so she'll appreciate everything I went through. <laughs> 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 to this story. <laughs> and then I said, no, that's just kind of feelings of pride and, <laughs> and a secret indebtedness, I hope, that she would feel. <laughs> But then I thought, oh, all of that's just kind of reinforcing the sense of self and ego. And <laughs> so after I went through this whole long sequence, I just began to look at my mind in amazement and wonder, well, where in the midst of this whole you know, whirlwind of thought was there that purity of motivation of just love and generosity? You know, it was very hard to find in that whole morass of thought. But upon reflection, you know, and really, because it really interested me, just watching my mind do this, I saw that there was that purity in the very first moment. You know, I think, oh yeah, this is a good story, I think she'll like it. And I saw then the possibility, even after going through this whole long whirlwind, you know, of conflicting motivations, that I could come back at the end of it, to that basic purity of generosity and act from that place again. So we can always come back to it, even if you know, we've taken a little detour. The P.S. to this whole, to this whole story <laughs> is that after the retreat, I told her about it and I showed her you know, the sutta. She wasn't at all interested. <laughs> She said, that's not relevant at all. <laughs> so, it's very important to keep looking at the motivation behind our actions, because it's the quality of our motivation that determines the result. We can do that not only for our ordinary worldly activities, we can also look at our motivation for practice itself. 
And we come here for a lot of different reasons. And maybe some people come with just just a chance to cool out a little bit, de-stress. Maybe some people are really caught in some emotional turmoil and they'd like to find a way to unhook from it. Maybe some of you really have the very sincere and deep aspiration for enlightenment, for liberation. There can be very many reasons that people come to practice. What I think is very helpful and transforming to realize is that all of our individual motivations can be held in a very great and large context. That whatever the reason that we come to practice, we can hold it with the motivation that our practice and our lives be for the benefit of all others. You know, it's, we, we can put all our individual motivations into that very great one. And that changes the quality of our experience as we nurture that, we reinforce it. So just as a simple example of things uh, you might do in this regard, if you connect with this feeling, if you feel that it's important. At the beginning of a sitting, for example, you might say, May I practice in order to awaken for the benefit of all beings. Just sets the tone. May I practice to awaken, to become free, to become calm, whatever, whatever the motivation is. May I practice it in order to benefit all beings. Maybe at the end of a sitting, may we dedicate the merit. May the merit of my practice be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness of all beings. It enlarges the scope of what we're doing. And it's, um, it's a very beautiful seed to water. You know, it may be very small, we shouldn't be idealistic and, you know, it's just very small seed that gets watered of our aspiration to live for the benefit of all. Uh, and our practice can be a
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.